3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, the show where we focus on the power of monopoly and how we can decipher those pressures on society to, in a way, split the right wing between the rent seekers, the monopolists, and those who are actively involved in the productive economy. That, for us, is the big schism that has occurred since the 1880s when the corruption of economics occurred, when the three-dimensional economy that included the earth, labour and capital, land, labour and capital, the earth was uh, represented by land and and natural monopolies also under that definition. Well, uh, the robber barons were scared shitless by what a guy named Henry George did His book, Progress and Poverty, stormed the world and thousands upon thousands of people uh, realised just uh, how the economy works and what we really need to be doing to uh, make it trigger for us all and not just those aristocratic families. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to bringing you an interview soon about the tour that Henry George uh, made through Australia in 1890. Uh, I think over 40 presentations were given in in about 55 days. So, uh, yeah, an amazing orator who helped provide a lot of the backbone to the labour movement uh, pre-unionisation. So uh, uh, we try to highlight each week some of the incredible history that has led to uh, uh, cultural institutions such as the Game of Monopoly, which was originally designed to teach people about the danger of privatising the earth, privatising the land, privatising our utilities, sending everyone to jail through indebtedness. Unfortunately, the rights to that game were sneakily acquired and uh, sold off to the the big end of town where they simplified it into a game where we specialise in making our siblings cry. (laughs) But somehow uh, society has become addicted to this game of real estate and over the last four weeks I have had four of the big players in this game of uh, maintaining and hoping like heck that one day one country on this planet will enact these policies to their full ramifications. And uh, yeah, to have Philip Anderson, the author of The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking on the show, giving our last presentation, a live recording from our last presentation at our Punchline premises. Uh, We followed that up with Fred Harrison on Beyond the 1%, uh, our leading author, the guy who uh, in... um 97, I think, predicted that would be 98. He predicted that by 2007, the uh, uh, English uh, housing market would be in a uh, frenzy of euphoria and uh, by 2010 will be in the depths of recession. Very few people believed him. He uh, he banged on the doors of Gordon Brown's office, uh, all the treasurers uh, leading up to this bubble era and and was warning them that uh, uh, the reduction in, in taxes on the land basically allows these capital gains to keep brewing and this free lunch becomes so powerful that it just dominates people's thinking, much like what we're seeing here in Australia at present. 
After that, uh, we had uh, Michael Hudson, the Master Blaster, on uh, his new book, uh, Labour in the Ancient World, where we we went back over some... uh, 10,000, 12,000 years in that interview, a fascinating uh, discussion that's being transcribed and will no doubt go viral around the internet as uh, nearly every one of our uh, interviews has. And then last week, uh, Alana Hartsock teed off on uh, US imperialism and the uh, probable uh, downfall of that as uh, China and Russia build their relations as the the BRICS bank of... uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa uh, start to offer up alternatives to the World Bank. So uh, today I wanted to play some of the excerpts from last week's show and uh, just have a look at and try and reiterate some of the points. So uh, let's just grab a, a few little quick grabs here. We'll start off with Michael Hudson, starting back in time, and I uh, asked him what labor in the ancient world uh, was all about. So um, let's kick into this. On how early societies mobilized uh, the labor force, especially for large public building projects such as uh, temples, city walls, and other infrastructure. And remember, uh, Hudson went on then to describe how uh, something that still reigns supreme almost has a greater influence than property speculation on the uh, average Australian backdoor barbecue, and that is uh, free beer. Yep, it was all about beer and feasts and uh, being part of the community through these amazing festivals based around the uh, lunar and solar cycles and uh, it was phenomenal to hear that some of these projects that were bigger than Stonehenge went on for hundreds of years before modern tools, before uh, yeah, iron was really invented and, and some of the cutting implements uh, uh, were around. So a lot of hard labour chipping away at uh, giant stones that thrown into uh, what became known as the Great Pyramid. So uh, a lot of uh, interesting discussion during that chat about uh, uh, the, de- the competition between the democratic rulers and the uh, financial system and how they were trying to etch into our independence. So uh, let's have a listen to Hudson in this short clip. There weren't that many people in the world in 2000 BC or 3000 BC or 10,000 BC. And uh, what you have, uh, when you would have a, uh, a government that got too oppressive or when they would raise the contributions or taxes too high, people would just uh, flee to another uh, another area. Or if they uh, if they were too much indebted, uh, the, the debtors would flee, as they did from uh, Babylonia around 1600 BC all the way down to uh, Roman times. And I really felt like I was stepping into a Game of Thrones type uh, discussion uh, with Hudson during this uh, interview as uh, this book... Uh, Labor in uh, the Ancient World. Uh, it was very interesting uh, having a, a preview of, of some of the, uh, the the writings in there and, and s- some select statements I've chosen here. Um, Property holders always have had a tendency to break free from their fiscal and social obligations. The history of civilization has seen a constant struggle to link 
property rights to reciprocal social obligations to serve society's survival, growth and equity in the face of owners seeking to use their privilege and control of the state itself in predatory and extractive ways. Wow, that's a big one, isn't it? It is about our sovereignty over some tiny portion of the land and our ability to grow our own food, trade with our neighbours, to uh, put uh, clothes on our back and if there's something left over to uh, perhaps uh, exchange at a market so that we can import uh, some some precious items that aren't available in our immediate community where uh, we tend to look after each other because we know uh, life is uh, the rough and tumble, uh, trying to survive off the the land itself. So uh, another key statement, mobilisation of Corvi labour, which uh, was that voluntary labour system that uh, was provided in lieu of taxation. Uh, Let me start again. Mobilisation of Corvi labour was linked to the fiscal systems based on land tenure. Property rights were part of society's system of providing itself with public labour by requiring landholding citizens provide service. So this is part of that social contract that was evolving early on so that you guys uh, want to uh, maintain your property. Well, me and my army as the uh, ruler will look after you if you come and uh, volunteer where we'll give you these feasts after the seasonal harvests have been uh, uh, shared and, and harvested. Come and join us for this huge feast. There'll be plenty of beer, plenty of music. And uh, for the next two or three months, we're going to work building this great pyramid. So in a way, this uh, voluntary, I don't know if it's voluntary, that's why this Corvi Labour is is the term um, in place of tax payments. It was that social contract. Uh, And this is how uh, governments were originally run, was that those who owned the land paid for the governing of the land. And this was a bit of a quid pro quo arrangement. So uh, let's step on into uh, this next uh, discussion about how this tension between the people and the governing bodies played out uh, as finance tried to snavel their snouts into play. In Babylonia, we have continual uh, debt cancellations whenever a new ruler would take the throne. And this is in our third volume, Debt and Economic Renewal in the Ancient Near East. Uh, The ruler would uh, proclaim Andararum or Misharum, uh, a clean slate, and he would do three things. And these three things are exactly what you get in the biblical jubilee year. You would free the debt slaves or the servants and let them return to their uh, family of origin. You would cancel all of the debts that were owed, and you would return the land rights or the crop rights to a debtors who had pledged them to their creditors. And in other words, what you would do is restore order. You would make things the way they were in an idealized past in which everybody owned their own land and could able to provide their own means of subsistence free of debt. It's the opposite of today's idea of debt serfdom, reducing more and more of the population uh, to debt peonage, where all of their income has to be paid to creditors. And finally, if they lose their job, they lose their land and their house, and uh, the banks get to keep it. That idea have depopulated the ancient world. If that would have happened, you'd have everybody just getting up and leaving, or they'd go over to the enemy when uh, people, uh, when other armies uh, that did have their own land uh, would attack. Uh, you'd have defections. 
uh, all the time. So uh, that's what sort of locked in the system of uh, widespread land ownership and liberty from debt. How important is that? All right, we're now going to skip forward into uh, the interview with Fred Harrison, Beyond the 1%. There was a lot of heavy issues covered, as always, with Fred. And uh, we're just going to jump in here. Uh, We're having a discussion about robotics and... uh, yeah, it's a bit uh, technical, but it's important what he's talking about as we jump from the past into the future. Uh, how are robotics going to affect our community and uh, the all-important uh, primal role we have of keeping a roof over our head by ensuring we have some land on which to stand? innovation appears to raise the product of the population, but the condition of most people tends not to improve. And that's because uh, with each movement forward, as with the current uh, phase of artificial intelligence and the use of robots to cut costs and increase productivity, if those gains are not uh, plowed back into the community uh, for the common good, then they end up increasing the wealth of a relatively few people and used against the majority. You see, the, the general process is uh, rather elementary. Ricardo neatly summarized it theoretically 200 years ago, which is that through competition, the returns to labor and to man-made capital are equalized across the territorial uh, economic space. They're equalized so that people's wages at the center of the economic system tend to be roughly the same as those out in the outlying districts. But the productivity rises exponentially at the economic center through the innovations and the latest being the exploration in artificial intelligence and the use of robots. Now, when uh, those innovations come on stream commercially, they raise productivity, but that productivity tends to, because of the competition in the marketplace, uh, get captured as rents, the rents of location, the rents of urbanization. Uh, And if those rents are not shared equally, if the benefits of progress are not equalized, then uh, instead of these progressive trends being to everybody's uh, benefit and used benignly, for the common good, they, turn, they tend to be turned against everybody because the wealthier a, a few, relatively few people become, the more hostile they are to the general interest. There's Fred Harrison. So robotics, uh, where society progresses, that's where the greatest uh, upkick in uh, property prices are, this magic money where you uh, all of a sudden see your property is not worth the 230000 you bought it. It's worth some $500,000 like I myself uh, am enjoying in Braybrook. But the problem is that we all become defensive of those gains and we'll go to any lengths pretty well to protect this sort of magic money rather than looking at a holistic reform that says, well, how on earth am I penalised for working but I make this money in my sleep? So if uh, the robotics era does really kick in and all of a sudden these high-tech centres develop, just like iPhone app designers who were getting $6,000 a year, uh, an app uh, a few years ago, uh, uh, those robotics technicians will be living near these robotics 
exotic centers and they'll be paid a fortune and lo and behold everyone will be looking at them with envy rather than a fairer way to uh, share some of these natural bounties all right yeah fred uh, had some interesting stuff that hopefully we're going to get back to soon but we're going to speed on to alana hartsock from last week who really delivered some some hard-hitting points on u.s imperialism i know a lot of 3cr listeners uh, enjoy that sort of banter so let's get back in and uh, listen to what she had to say privilege fund funders those who control that the privilege fund, basically monopolists, bankers, the the real estate lobby, uh, the 0.01 percenters. That's what she's talking about. These are the very apex of the uh, the Davos type crew. They're like psychopathic, never ending desire for more wealth and more power. And so, when you're on the top of the heap, and when your country has become a superpower, you just can't say stop. That's enough. You got to go out and have this plan for full spectrum dominance of the whole world, which means you got to control the people, the land, and the resources of the entire planet to keep growing uh, uh, your power and control system. Uh, if you go deep into that rabbit hole, it starts looking like a very sick yet powerful matrix, uh, just like the movie which we're really up against, uh, or it's the, the, the octopus with, with his arms into just about every everything you can imagine, the media system, and, and then the control of the military, military-industrial complex that our president, Dwight David Eisenhower, warned us about decades ago now has come to be. So you have a full-blown militarization system that, as empire doesn't care anymore, just voices the concern for democracy. That's a veneer that we're bringing democracy into these other countries. A veneer, yes. I hope many of you have visited earthsharing.org.au to get the link to Alana's article, The Economics of War and Peace. Uh, Many of you will remember over the seven years, I was very concerned and was sure the economy was going to crash. This next guy, Philip Anderson, uh, he sums up why it hasn't. The banking elite, they are not going to allow the system to collapse And one of the ways they can push things forward is by opening up new areas of the world where the land is yet to be mortgaged. Vietnam, China, um, parts of parts of Korea, North Korea, if they could ever get their hands on it. You know, it's 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 a lot of land around the world that the banks don't have their fingers in yet. The World Bank is constantly. This I don't. I mean to sound conspiratorial, but the World Bank is constantly trying to break into those areas, as this organisation well knows, because we spent a lot of time in the early 1990s trying to get Russia, when it opened up, trying to get Russia into a system where they didn't privatise their rent, the rent of their resources. The World Bank moved straight in there, and anybody, anybody that was anybody that was counter their, to their viewpoint, the US, especially in the US, either didn't give them a visa or a passport, or they were shot on the spot. Whoa, heavy stuff. Uh, Phil Anderson always uh, blows me away when he speaks, and I tell you, the really heavy stuff it was not included on this public airing, so I hope you can get to see him when he's back in Australia next year. Yeah, it's 
a crazy world. Uh, so uh, uh, let's slide on back to Alana Hartsock and uh, hear a bit of a positive take on what we're really talking about, how we can unfold these uh, monopoly powers. For economic democracy, we've got to take that privilege fund and see that those monies collected from, from rent and uh, interest, that is what needs to be socialized, if you will, belongs to society as a whole. It's an unearned income when privatized. And then we can truly privatize what we need to privatize, which is people's wages. Don't tax work, collect rent from land and resources. You see that already a bit in the movements that want to do carbon, uh, not carbon trading, but tax the carbon emissions and then share the as dividends those funds from charging for carbon emissions. That's the way to go. There's uh, some populist movements around that. And that's certainly the case. Uh, Alaska is a big one that shares the oil rents. A Republican governor installed that there. Imagine if Australia had have shared their mining rents and uh, we all got some $2,000 a year. That's the sort of story we're talking about. Uh, it's not quite as simple as that, though. If we did all receive two grand a year, we'd all compete with each other and push up the price of land because we'd all want to live near that new robotic centre or that uh, uh, new development by the harbour. So, uh, yeah, it's a big story what we're talking about. And unfortunately, uh, we have too much one-eyed analysis, as Philip Anderson talks about here, regarding foreign investment. All of us here, not not personally, but a lot of Australians went overseas. We bought in Bali. We bought in Thailand. We bought in Southeast Asia. We didn't give a hoop. We didn't care a thing about what the... We bought, we pushed up the land prices of those countries. Do you think the people, the buying over, the, the buyers that went over there, do you think they cared much about the local people who could no longer afford to buy their house? Not a bit. The Chinese are now coming out here. They don't, they don't care how high the price is, and they don't care if you and I, if your kids can't buy the house because the price is too high. This is going to test us the very fabric of what Australia is made of, and it could continue at least for the next 10 years. And the real estate lobby, they are not going to allow you to complain about it because they're going to come up and say the Chinese, they drive job growth, they drive this, they drive that, they drive everything else. Yeah, and yes, I'm a racist because I want to talk about it. Yes. And there we have Phil Anderson. Uh, you can check out his work at businesscycles.biz. He's also uh, heavily involved with the Daily Reckoning, a very interesting uh, economics-based e-news. Uh, if you ask me, it kicks ass over Crikey and some of those other ones that are well hyped out there, those traditional uh, soft left investigations. Sure, they do good stuff on politics. They talk up health and education, corruption, so forth. But do they look at the bigger picture? I don't think so. So, uh yeah, uh, foreign investment, you know, this world of capital mobility I keep talking about. You can open a HSBC account and flick money from Hong Kong to Iceland to New Zealand to Australia and back again within five seconds. It's so easy now to buy and sell real estate from a hammock sitting in your favorite tax haven of choice uh, on your iPhone. So uh, they're the pressures we've got. We've got Joe Hockey concerned about the $5 billion a year that Apple and Google Google are dodging their taxes on, but, you know, they leave so many loopholes open that, uh, of course, they're going to do that. 
what we're saying is, look, if you switch your taxes off our wages and place them on the things that we can't hide, such as land, such as mining leases, such as the the licenses behind privatized utilities and uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, well, you cannot avoid those taxes. So uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, Jessica Irvine in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald wrote a very uh, forceful article about this uh, budget deficit debate and what's going on with the federal government concerned about uh, the price of iron ore falling to perhaps $35 a tonne. That's going to wipe out some $25 billion over the next four years. Well, I wrote a press release uh, yesterday complaining about some of these states which are saying, look, if we don't get a bigger share of the GST because of this uh, commission of cuts, the commission of audit, which came through and, and paved the way for the Abbott government to cut back so heavily on health and education. Uh, uh, the South Australia is saying, look, we're going to put a tax on bank deposits. We're going to do destructive economic policy despite you uh, liberal federals. I'm saying, my, oh, my, this is just crazy. Uh, we've got big problems outside of that. We have this massive nonstop property bubble that uh, in the 2013-14 year, I mean, here we have the federal treasurer complaining about $5 billion bucks, whilst he looks the other way on the fact that the land values of Australia increased by $418 billion in one single year. That is immense. I'm predicting that the uh, the current financial year is going to be just as high with uh, Sydney leading the way. I saw one stat that post the global financial crisis, uh, uh, nationally property prices have increased by 28%, but uh, Sydney has gone up some 60-odd percent, 62%, I think. So it's just uh, carnage out there for wage earners who cannot keep up. First homeowners in Sydney are falling to record lows. They're not much better here in Melbourne, and no doubt around the country so uh, I implore you youngsters to uh, study up on some of the stuff you see on the earthsharing.org.au website if you're new to this story make sure you check out uh, my uh, old documentary realestateforransom.com with the four for f- the number four realestateforransom.com uh, those over 55 now hold 58% of all wealth up from the 51% held by that uh, cohort back in 0304 uh, the households aged 24 to 34 actually went backwards, a 4% drop. This is uh, from the Grattan Institute's their report, the Wealth of Generations report. So um, one of my Twitter followers says, what if democracy didn't have to be an enemy to the rich and capitalism didn't have to be an enemy of the poor? That's what we're talking about because uh, there is a stunning generational unfairness in our budget settings and all those disengaged younger Australians need to wake up to the fact they are being massively screwed over by what the baby boomers are leaving for them. So said Chris Richardson from Deloitte Economics a good six weeks ago and uh, just blew my socks off to see that uh, this week uh, was the superannuation industry group announced this themselves. They said there were some 24,000 retirees with self-managed super funds of over $2 million in holdings who were receiving some $216,000 a year tax-free. 
Goodness me, the uh, tax loopholes are just so in your face, you can't believe it. So, uh, yeah. All right. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks very much for listening to The Renegade Economist. I hope you can listen to those last four interviews in depth. Please fire me any questions at renegades at earthsharing.org.au. We'll uh, be back with you on the beloved 3CR Airwaves next week.